Schindler's List is consistently voted one of the greatest films of all time in viewer polls. Released in 1993, it was nominated for 12 Oscars and won seven of them, including the awards for Best Picture and Best Director, Steven Spielberg. It tells the story of a German businessman, Oscar Schindler, who used his position to save the lives of hundreds of Jews who would otherwise have been sent to the Nazi death camps. One of the interesting decisions that Spielberg made was to, to, to film the movie almost entirely in stark black and white. In doing so, he not only evoked the time period in which the events were set, but also reflected the moral darkness of the subject matter. If you've seen the film, however, you'll know that there are two scenes in which colour appears briefly in the midst of the black and white. In one scene at the end of the film, candles are shown burning with orange flames. But the other scene is arguably the most memorable of the whole film. Schindler stands watching from a hill as hundreds of Nazi troops are sent into a Jewish ghetto, raising it to the ground and shooting those who refuse to leave. And in the midst of the carnage, he notices a little girl in a red coat. And he follows her with his eyes as she tries to escape and hide from the soldiers. And even though, like Schindler, we watch it also from a distance, our eyes are also immediately drawn to this one little girl in her red coat. Well, Spielberg's sparing use of colour in the film proved very effective and was critically acclaimed. But it was effective only because of the black and white around it. The red coat and the candles were so striking only because they were set in the midst of a dark and a colourless background. Well, as we've moved through this series of messages in Jeremiah, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, you may have found yourself thinking, this is pretty dark stuff. It's all doom and gloom. It's all judgment, judgment, judgment. And you'd be partly justified in thinking that. And I have to tell you that the chapters that we're going to look at this morning uh, are no exception. If anything, they're the worst yet. It's a dark, dark picture. But the wonderful truth that I want to try and communicate this morning, with God's help, is that there is grace in the midst of it all. There is grace in the midst of it all. In fact, what we find is that God's grace shines the brightest in the midst of God's judgment, like beams of sunlight breaking through the darkest storm clouds. We need that dark background so that we can fully appreciate the rich colour and brightness of divine grace. So let's look at these two chapters, which fall neatly into three sections. And uh, I've simply chosen a, a one-word title for each, which describes the outcome of God's judgment on human sin. Division, deportation, and desolation. So look first at chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. A bit of historical background, first of all. The year is around 597 BC. Judgment Day has finally arrived for Judah, the southern kingdom of divided Israel, just as it had arrived for the northern kingdom some 125 years earlier. Because of their persistent unfaithfulness, 
their persistent spiritual adultery, God is finally going to hand over his chosen people to the Babylonians, the new regional superpower. And the great army of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is at the door. They attack and overwhelm Judah, and they carry off into exile the 18-year-old king of Judah, Jehoiakim, along with many high-ranking officials and other leading figures in the Jewish nation. And in his place, the Babylonians install his uncle, Zedekiah, to rule as a puppet king with his officials and the others who have been left behind. However, Judah has not been totally destroyed at this time. Although it's under the control of Babylon, it still has a king, it still has a government, and life continues on for those who have been spared exile. Well, when dramatic world events occur, people who live through them often have different interpretations of those events. Just think of all the different opinions that there are about the significance of the events of the 11th of September 2001 and the uh, events that followed that. But for all such events, the only interpretation that really matters is God's interpretation. And in this chapter, we find God revealing his interpretation of the Babylonian conquest to his faithful prophet, Jeremiah. Now, unlike his fellow prophet, Ezekiel, Jeremiah was not taken away into exile with Jehoiakim and the others. He was left behind in Jerusalem. And one day, as he's going about his business, whatever it is that prophets do when they're not prophesying, the Lord shows him Two baskets, verse 1. And it isn't entirely clear whether this was a prophetic vision that he received or whether these were actual baskets of fruit that uh, Jeremiah saw while he was out doing his groceries. But what Jeremiah saw is clear. One basket is full of fresh, perfectly ripened figs. Just ideal for eating. Absolutely delicious. You can almost hear the Sultry female voiceover. These aren't just figs. <laughs> These are succulent, sweet-juiced, easy-peel organic figs from the sun-kissed valleys of the Middle East. But the other basket, in stark contrast, is full of rotten fruit. These figs are very poor. So poor, in fact, that they're downright inedible. Earlier in the year, I was... Uh, getting the kids ready for bed one evening when I heard a scream from the kitchen where my wife was preparing dinner. Well, I raced down the stairs, stealing myself a battle with an enormous spider. Uh, but in fact, my wife had been chopping up a cod loin and several live worms had wriggled out of it. Yes, exactly. Well, needless to say, we changed our dinner plans. Well, Jeremiah was repulsed at the sight of these figs, these bad figs. But God wasn't giving Jeremiah a lesson in how to pick the best fruit at the market. It was a vivid illustration, a visual aid. God tells Jeremiah that those who had gone into exile are like the good figs, and those who had been left behind in Jerusalem were like the bad figs. Now you have to understand that this interpretation of events was not at all the obvious one. To most people who were there at that time, it would have appeared that uh, those who were carried away from their homeland were the ones cursed by God. And those who were left alone to 
carry on with their lives, were the ones blessed by God. But the Lord reveals to Jeremiah that it's precisely the other way around. The future of God's people lay with the exiles, not with King Zedekiah and his government. And in fact, the people of Judah should have understood this from what Jeremiah prophesied back in chapter 21. This is what the Lord said. This is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine or plague, but whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. He will escape with his life. Chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Against popular opinion, exile would be the way of life. Well, you know, a similar principle applies even today. Often those who appear to be blessed by God in the eyes of the world are those who turn out to be under his judgment because of their disobedience. And those who appear to be under God's curse, again, in the eyes of the world, are those who are truly his faithful people. But what really matters in God's eyes is whether we have chosen the way of life as God has revealed it. What really matters is how things turn out in the end. So let's see how things turn out in the end for the good figs and for the bad figs. First, the bad, verses 9 and 10. I will make them abhorrent and an offence to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, the famine and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. What seemed like God's blessing was only a delay before judgment. And in the end, the bad figs would face complete and utter destruction. It's a horrifying fate. But against the darkness of God's judgment, his grace to his chosen people shines all the brighter. Yes, they they may be in exile, Yes, it will be hard for them. Yes, there will be times of great sadness and suffering. But there will also be all the grace that they need to see them through. Just look with me at God's promises to the good figs, to the exiles, and all the different kinds of grace expressed in these verses. First, there is justifying grace. Justifying grace is when God treats us as righteous, even though we aren't righteous. He treats us as good, even though, really, we aren't good. Verse 5. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah. They weren't really good. They were no less sinners than those who had been left behind. But in his grace, God had chosen to regard them as good, to count them as good, just as he had counted their ancestor Abraham as righteous because of his faith in God, and not because he deserved it. Genesis 15, verse 6. This is the grace of justification. To put it crudely, God treats us just as if we are good, even though we're still bad. Secondly, there is protecting grace. Protecting grace. Verse 6. My eyes will watch over them for good. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. God promised to protect his exiled people through all the trials that they would face. 
And these exiles included well-known names like Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when we read about how God kept them from harm, we can see he was absolutely true to his word here. Then there is restoring grace. Restoring grace. Verse 6. I will bring them back to this land. The exile would not last forever. God would restore them to a place of freedom, peace, prosperity and blessing. There is also renewing grace. Renewing grace. The basic problem of every man and woman, boy and girl in Judah, was a heart problem. A heart problem. We saw this when uh, Colin preached on chapter 17 of Jeremiah some weeks ago. You remember? Chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That is why the Israelites were unfaithful to God. They had bad hearts. But now, look at verse 7, chapter 24. I will give them a heart to know me. God now promises to give some of them new hearts so that they would love him and truly know him. Not only would he treat them as good, he would turn them to good. He promises both justifying grace and renewing grace. And finally, there is possessing grace. Possessing grace. Verse 7. They will be my people and I will be their God. This is the biblical language of covenant. This is the language of a privileged relationship with God. This is God speaking of his prized possessions. Prized not because they're inherently worthy, but simply because he graciously sets his love upon them and makes them his own. Now, the wonderful thing is that all this grace is still available to God's people today. If you're a Christian, there is a sense in which you are like the Old Testament exiles. You're a stranger in the world. You're waiting to be restored to your true home. And this is a time of waiting and often a time of hardship. But you have justifying grace. God regards you as good even though you still sin because of your faith in Jesus. And you have protecting grace. God watches over you. He won't let you fall. You have restoring grace. God promised, uh, Jesus promised his disciples that everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or fields for his sake would receive a hundred times as much and would inherit eternal life. You have renewing grace. God has given you a new heart to love him and to change you inwardly to be like Jesus. And you have possessing grace. You are in covenant with God. You are in a privileged relationship with him. You belong to him and he will not let you go. I want to just make one more point before moving on. I've titled this section, Division. Because that's what happened to the people of Judah. They were divided. But note what a sharp division it is. Jeremiah didn't see one basket of fruit with a range of quality, all mixed up. Some that are very good, some that are very bad, and a whole lot that are in between somewhere. No, he saw 
two distinct baskets. The figs in one were very good, and the figs in the other were very bad. So bad that they couldn't be eaten. It was a sharp division. And when it comes to how we respond to God's judgment against sin, there will always be a sharp division. Either you choose the way of life, or you choose the way of death. Either you're in a relationship with him, or you're not. Either you're one of his people, or you're not. There are some today, even some who claim to follow the teachings of Jesus, who want to blur that sharp distinction. They'll say things like this, oh, we're all on a spiritual journey, it's just that some of us are at different points than others. God doesn't draw sharp lines, and neither should we. But that contradicts not only what we read here in Jeremiah, but also the very teachings of Jesus. Jesus spoke of sharp divisions all the time. A division between the wheat in God's, in God's field and the weeds that would be plucked up and burned. A division between the sheep who would enter God's kingdom and the goats who enter eternal fire. A division between the children of Abraham and the children of the devil. A division between those who have eternal life and those who don't. And so my simple question is, on which side of the division do you stand? Are you a good fig or a bad fig? Do you even know? If you don't, then you need to resolve that without delay, while there's still time. Well, let's move on to the second section of the passage, chapter 25, verses 1 to 14, which I've titled, Deportation. Deportation. And don't worry, the next two points will not be as long as the first. The book of Jeremiah, as you may have uh, realised by now, doesn't always fo uh, follow a, a chronological order. It's sometimes more topical in order. And what we find in chapter 25 is that we've jumped back several years from the events in chapter 24. Jehoiakim, who was the father of Jehoiakim, has been king for four years at this point. And Jeremiah brings a prophetic word from God about God's coming judgment. A prophecy that states the reason for God's judgment and the result of God's judgment but also a restraint on God's judgment. Now I'm going to pause and see if we can do something about this microphone. Read this through my shirt. <laughs> How's that? Okay, good, good. So here we have a prophetic word from the Lord about his coming judgment, a prophecy that uh, speaks not only of 
the reason for God's judgment and the result of God's judgment, but also a restraint on God's judgment. Now, the reason for God's judgment is given in verses 4 to 7. The people of Judah, the Lord says, have followed evil ways and evil practices. They've worshipped and served other gods, and they've ignored all the warnings from God's prophets to turn back to him. And Jeremiah, in particular, has been warning them for 23 years. But the people haven't listened. They've ignored these warnings. And so they will finally endure the consequences of God's righteous anger. And the result of God's judgment, as we've just seen, is that the land and cities of Judah will be completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And in a statement that's really loaded with irony, this pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is described as the servant of the Lord. A pagan king, the servant of the Lord. Just to get some idea of how that would sound, imagine a street preacher in France in 1941 referring to Adolf Hitler as God's servant. But this description of Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful testimony to God's sovereignty in the affairs of nations. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant because he is the agent of God's judgment, even though this pagan king himself is completely unaware of it. God can and does use ungodly rulers to serve his own good and just purposes. And yet the picture that we see of God's judgment here is horrific nonetheless. He will completely destroy Judah, along with their pagan neighbours. He will make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. All sounds of joy and gladness will be gone. The whole country will be a desolate wasteland. So where's the grace here? Where's the grace? Where is the bright colour of grace in the midst of the grim darkness of God's judgement? Can you see it? It's found in two words. Seventy years. Seventy years. There is also a restraint on God's judgement. The agents of his judgement, the Babylonians, will be reined in and given their just deserts as well. And after 70 years, there will be desolation for Babylon. Verse 12. And desolation for Babylon means deliverance for Judah. It means deliverance for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Those good figs who will be allowed to return home by Cyrus, the Persian king who eventually conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC, 70 years after Babylon rose to power. For God's covenant people, there was grace. There was grace. There was a restraint on the effects of God's judgment. There was a time limit set on their trials. And you know it's the same for God's people today. His new covenant people, us. We live in a fallen world which groans under the effects of God's judgment and we fully deserve to live in it. We're part of it. But whatever trials we face now, There is a time limit for the people of God. Our trials will come to an end, one way or another, whether in this world or in the world to come. Our trials may be short or they may be long, perhaps even 70 years or more. But they will come to an end and they will fade into eternity. The Apostle Paul, who faced trials in his life surely as difficult as anyone, put it like this. I consider 
that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8, verse 18. Well, finally, let's move to verses 15 to 38 of chapter 25. And I've summed up the thrust of this section with the title, Desolation. Desolation. The image of the two baskets that we had in chapter 24 has been left behind, and now a new container is in view. A cup. A cup. And this cup, which uh, features not only here in Jeremiah, as it turns out, but also in the prophecies of Isaiah and in the Psalms, is surely one of the most terrifying images in the Bible. The cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of the righteous anger of a holy God against all human wickedness. This cup is filled with the wine of God's wrath, verse 15. And now Jeremiah is to play the role of God's cup bearer. He's given the task of making the nations drink from it by declaring God's coming judgment through his prophecies. And as we've already seen, God's judgment is delivered through the hands of the Babylonians. And in this passage, we discover first who exactly will drink this cup, this cup of God's wrath, and second, how serious it's going to be. Who will be the first to drink the cup? Verse 18, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. The people of Judah are going to learn that being God's special people doesn't exempt you from judgment for persistent unfaithfulness. No, quite the opposite. Greater privileges mean greater punishment when those privileges are ignored and abused. But look who else will suffer God's wrath. Verses 19 to 26. There's Egypt, Uz, all the Philistine lands, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre and Sidon, all the coastal lands, Dedan, Temah, Buz, and other far-off lands, all the Arabian lands, all the desert peoples, Zimri, Elam, and Media, all the northern territories, both far and near, indeed, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Verse 26. All the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And finally, the Lord says, the king of Sheshach will drink it too. The king of Sheshach. Now, you may be wondering, who is this king of Sheshach guy? What's so special about this place, Sheshach, that it gets singled out last of all? Well, in fact, Sheshach is the name of a very famous city, but in code. Some of you may remember from your childhood those uh, code rings that used to get in uh, packets of breakfast cereal. You used to get such better things in breakfast cereal in those days. But, for example, what you would do with the code ring is uh, you would take the message that you wanted to encode and you would use this code ring to change every letter A to letter Z, letter B to letter Y, C to X, and so on through the alphabet. And then, uh, to decode this message, you do the reverse. Well, if you do the same with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and you decode the name Sheshach, you get Babel. It's Babylon. It's Babylon. Even though the uh, Babylonians are the agents of God's judgment, they will suffer God's judgment like everyone else. Why? Because they deserve it like everyone else. And so the point of this prophecy is crystal clear. Everyone must drink the cup 
of God's wrath. Why? Because they are all wicked and rebellious at heart. And as the rest of the chapter makes painfully clear, God's wrath is a terrifying prospect. The wine that's poured into this cup isn't a a, a light Chardonnay. It's a potent bitter brew that causes confusion, sickness and madness. The people cannot refuse it. Verse 28, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. God is going to send utter disaster on these nations. As his cup is poured out, the Lord roars from on high, verse 30. He thunders and shouts against all who live on the earth. Verse 31 describes an apocalyptic courtroom in which God serves as prosecutor, as judge, as executioner all at once. And as he executes his judgment, disaster approaches like like dark storm clouds rolling in from the horizon. Verse 32. And this disaster is complete and unrelenting. There is death, verses 33 and 34. So many dead that the the, the bodies have to be left like rubbish on the ground. There's desperation, verse 35. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. There's destruction, verse 36. Whole communities and societies are being destroyed. There's devastation, verse 37. Lands that were once, once fruitful and peaceful are now laid waste. And there is desolation. Verse 38. Nothing can survive the burning heat of the Lord's fierce anger. All is forsaken. Well, this is a truly terrifying picture of God's judgment against sin. And if this prophecy had been given today, the list of nations that included Scotland, we would be horrified at the thought of anything like this happening to us. Well, perhaps we can comfort ourselves with the thought that all this has very little relevance as we read it now. Some people enjoy watching horror movies because although the gory images scare them at the time, they know that they're still just spectators and they can walk away at the end of it. But that's not the case here. We're not just spectators. The cup of God's wrath should be poured out on everyone without exception Because everyone without exception deserves it. And despite what many people want to believe, the threat of God's wrath is just as real in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. Take Jesus. Jesus warned people that unless they accepted him, God's wrath would remain on them because of their sin. John 3, verse 36. And the Apostle Paul wrote that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Romans 1.18 But perhaps most shocking and striking of all is what we find in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation now to see this for yourself. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. If you're using a A church Bible, it's page 1243. I think it's important that we look at this together and see it with our own eyes. The book of Revelation presents a harrowing vision of God's final day of judgment when the curtain is brought down on human history once and for all. So read with me chapter 14 and starting at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. 
He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, and the beast is a representative of every enemy of God, and those who worship the beast are those who don't worship God. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead and on the hand, he too will drink the the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. It's exactly the same image. Exactly the same image as in Jeremiah 25. The cup of God's wrath. It's there in the New Testament as much as the Old. And so this picture that we've just looked at, this picture of God's wrath in Jeremiah 25, is one that every person today with a spiritual heart problem needs to take very seriously. But you ask, where is the grace? Where is the grace in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 38? Where is the light of grace in the midst of this dark vision of God's judgment? Well, the short answer is, we can't find it here. We can't find it here. We have to zoom out. We have to broaden our biblical horizons. And when we do that, we find the cup of God's wrath on the lips of Jesus. And in a way that speaks to us of grace rather than of judgment. At the end of his three-year ministry, Jesus travelled with his disciples to the city of Jerusalem. And as they walked, Jesus predicted his own execution at the hands of the authorities there. And he spoke of a cup. A cup that he would have to drink. It was a cup that his father had given him. And it was clear from what he said that this cup would involve great distress and suffering for Jesus. On the night of his arrest, after he had eaten a meal with his disciples, he went to a garden to pray. And this is what he prayed. His first prayer was, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he prayed a second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then he prayed a third time. The same prayer again. But it wasn't possible to take the cup away. It was his father's will for him to drink it. And drink it he did when he was nailed to a wooden cross the following day to die in agony. What was the cup that Jesus drank? What was that cup? It was the cup of God's wrath against human sin. Jesus' cup was Jeremiah's cup. Jesus' cup was Jeremiah's cup. When Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the full force of God's wrath and judgment against human sin, against our sin. He placed himself under God's curse. The Gospel writers tell us that when he died, that darkness fell across the whole land. 
a sign of God's judgment in the Old Testament. And then Jesus cried out on the cross, a cry of sheer desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, those weren't his final words. His final words were, it is finished. Jesus had drunk to the very last drop the cup of the wine of God's righteous anger and judgment. He endured God's wrath in the place of the sinners he came to save from that wrath. And so, when we look at that terrifying image of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath in Jeremiah Jeremiah 25, it should really cause us to say this, how much Jesus must love us. How much he must love us to drink that cup for us. I finish with a simple question for everyone here. We're sinful people. By nature, we're the bad figs. Each of us fully deserves to drink the cup of God's wrath. In fact, we have to drink it. We have to take it. We cannot refuse it. But we don't have to drink it ourselves. We can pass it to Jesus. And so this is my question. When God's final day of judgment comes, as it surely will, at the end of that day, who will have drunk the cup of God's wrath against your sin? You? Or Jesus? If you don't have the assurance of the grace of God, rather than the wrath of God, put your trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Oh Father, forgive us for not taking our sin as seriously as you do. Forgive us for not taking your wrath seriously. Forgive us for the times that we have thought ourselves inherently worthy of your blessing rather than your judgment. But we thank you, Father, that your incredible grace shines all the brighter in the midst of your righteous judgment on our sin. And we praise you for the supreme demonstration of your grace in the death of the Lord Jesus, who drank the cup of divine wrath in the place of those he came to save. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not received that grace through faith in Christ, that they would do so today and know the assurance of eternal life. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen.